Turn with me, if you will, to Luke 17. Luke 17. <clears throat> As we continue working our way through this gospel. <coughs> we'll look this morning at the first ten verses of Luke 17. <clears throat> now we Christians believe that faith is at the heart of Christian discipleship. Everybody believes that, who knows, who calls himself a Christian, I suspect. But what does faith look like? We live in a time when faith is this uh, kind of a spooky thing. It's thought to be a feeling of some uh, sp special experience of God that we had. It's thought to be some connection by which we tap into the supernatural, spiritual power of the universe. Or, or it's thought to be some invisible, magical tool or even, even weapon which we alone wield, kind of like a spiritual lightsaber. We zap something with faith and everything changes. Things happen. It's also sometimes thought to be a replacement for thinking or decision making or hard work. Just believe it's so and it's so. We live in a world of strange ideas about faith. So this morning the Lord Jesus has some instruction on faith for people like us. Here Jesus talks about Christian discipleship, about the life of faith. And it might surprise you what all he has to say. Let me read it. Luke 17, 1 to 10. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to that servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And there we'll end our reading. Before we get into this, uh, uh, let me just kind of describe what we have in this text. It's kind of a difficult text to understand a little bit. Here we have four uh, what have been called proverb-like expressions in this text. Uh, one on uh, causing people to sin, one on forgiveness, one on faith, and one on being a servant. The, the issue is, what's the relationship between those four, those four ideas? Some people have argued there isn't any relationship. They're just random proverbs thrown together here. The Bible actually is much more intentional than that. Jesus, or, or at least Luke, when he reported on Jesus' teaching, uh, put these teachings together to make some point. And of course, that's the difficult. What's the point? The difficult thing, what's the point he's making? I've come to believe that faith 
is the connecting link, the point of this whole passage. At the center of the passage, in verse 5, the disciples uh, pray, increase our faith. Now, that was the disciples' response to the first two things that Jesus said um, in in verses 1 to 4. It was an admission they needed greater faith to do that. And then, after they asked that, the second half of the text verses 6 to 10, is Jesus' instruction to them in response to their their desire for more faith. Those two halves, connected by faith, seem to give us two great truths that have something to do with what faith looks like. And uh, that's how we'll uh, consider two great truths about faith. So what did Jesus say in this first part? that uh, seem to demand such great faith. Well, that's our first point. That faith shows grace to the weaker brother. Faith shows grace to the weaker brother. We all seem to be in the search for the perfect church. Some of you may think you have found it here. Others of you are astonished that you might think that. We know better. The truth is, over the years, we, like every other church, have had lots of people stumble and lose their way and walk away. It's a sad reality, but people stumbling and falling away is a fact of life. It's against that backdrop that Jesus instructs us to show grace to the weak. First of all, we show grace by protecting the weak from ourselves. Jesus is clear that some people are going to stumble and fall. He's also clear that some other people are going to cause them to stumble. And he wants to warn us, you make sure you are not the one that causes the weak to stumble. So what's this stumbling Jesus is talking about? Well, interestingly, interestingly, the word means... A bait stick. The trigger, this is what my dictionary says, the trigger of a trap on which the bait is placed and which when touched by the animal springs and causes it to close, causing entrapment. Jesus is warning us not to be the occasion of our brother or sister being lured, baited, and then trapped by sin. Now, we would never do that, would we? Well, actually, we might. We live in a time where most of us feel if someone stumbles, it's not my fault. People make their own choices. It has nothing to do with me. We feel like, I don't have to babysit people and walk on eggshells around all their crazy little scruples. Well, maybe you do. This is what the Apostle Paul addressed in his epistles in a couple of different places. That we have to think about how people respond to our freedom to eat meat that's offered to idols, or our freedom to drink strong drink, or our freedom to rigorously keep one day holy above all the rest, or our freedom to not rigorously keep one day holy above all the rest, and many other things which we feel free in Christ to do. But you see, our freedom 
is not the only consideration. Showing grace to those weaker than us, protecting them from stumbling in their faith, exercising the law of love, trumps all your freedoms. So the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 14, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. That's what faith looks like. It shows grace to the weaker brother. And Jesus isn't kidding about this. In verse 2, he says, you would be better to have a millstone put around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause someone to stumble. We don't use millstones, but this is a vivid picture. In a mill that was built to grind grain, there was an upper and a lower millstone. The lower millstone looked like a cone. The upper millstone was a, uh, looked like a donut with a funnel-shaped hole in it, which fit down over the cone. And as, a, a, as an ox or a, a donkey uh, uh, t- went around and turned that upper stone, the grain was put in there, and between the two stones it was crushed and ground into flour. Now what Jesus is describing is taking that huge upper stone and putting it as a collar around someone's neck and throwing them into the sea. It sounds like a mafia-type execution, you know, your feet in concrete kind of thing. But Jesus says that does not compare with the seriousness of causing a brother or sister for whom Christ died to stumble into sin. Watch yourselves, Jesus says. This morning, I call you to watch yourself. For this tendency to cause one to stumble in his or her faith is seldom ever anymore about eating meat offered to idols. That was a first century problem. No, this is about causing your children to turn away from the faith because of the hypocrisy that they see in you fighting with your wife or your husband or you living in a way that is not Christian at all. This is about causing new believers to become disillusioned with our church because when they come, all they see is people fighting about and arguing about some theological thing that they know nothing about. This is about causing those who are interested in the gospel to give up on it because you as a Christian, once you're outside the walls of this church, are no different than anyone else. That's what stumbling is about nowadays. And faith shows grace to the weak by watching ourselves to make sure we do not cause that stumbling. But in spite of how carefully we might watch ourselves, some people are going to stumble and fall into sin. That's what Jesus says here right at the beginning. And so, then what? Well, again, faith shows grace to the weaker brother. But now that grace is expressed not in the form of trying to keep them from stumbling, but in the in the form of forgiveness and reconciliation. Here Jesus lays out in summary form the same procedure he gives us more fully in Matthew 18, only here he reduces it down to two steps. First he says if someone sins, rebuke him. 
This is not calling for harshness here, but simply for direct intervention. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Now that's the last thing we want to do, I know that. We would much rather discuss it with lots of folks. A prayer request, of course. We would rather just write that person off and say, I don't need that person in my life anymore. I'm done with it. We would rather just make nice and sweep it all under the carpet like it didn't happen. We would rather do most anything than to actually go and talk to someone who we feel has sinned against us. But you see, if we will do what Jesus says, there's reason for hope. For sometimes, there was actually no offense at all. It was only a great big misunderstanding. Aren't you glad you didn't slander your brother or your sister before you went and talked to them? And sometimes we might find out they weren't in the wrong at all. It was us that were in the wrong. Aren't you glad you sorted that out before everybody realized how wrong you were? And sometimes the erring brother will repent and turn back to the Lord, making us an instrument of God's grace in his life. I know how hard this is to do, but this is God's way. And our refusal to do so injures and turns people away from Christ who died for them. And what do we do then if that person does repent? He says, you know, you're right. That was wrong. I sinned. Well, secondly, then Jesus says, forgive him. We actually put it into words. I forgive you. Not just, it's okay, don't think, I'll forget about it. I forgive you. The slate is wiped clean. The sin is gone. It's forgotten. It's off the table. I won't deal with you in terms of that anymore. There's a new day. There's a second chance. The brother or sisters receive back into fellowship as if he had never sinned. But what if he does it again? Well, we go back to him again. And if he repents, we receive him back again. But what if that's still not the end of it? What if he sins again? We address it with him, and if he repents, we receive him back again, forgiven. Again and again, we drop the charges when he repents. We are not, hear me here, we are not in the business of punishment. Even formal judicial procedure, if, if it should ever come to that, is never to be punitive. We are only confronting a brother or sister to call them to turn around and come back to the Savior. And when they do, they are forgiven. We have no punishment to mete out. For the gospel says Christ has taken our punishment. He only calls us to repent and come to him. How many times are we going to do this then? Well, Jesus says uh, up to seven times a day if you have to. <laughs> 
In other words, you quit counting. 70 times 7, he says in another place. We keep on doing it as long as a brother or sister repents. Oh, this is not to say that there are never any consequences for sin. There are consequences for sin, and we can't automatically remove all the consequences of people's sin. But we do forgive again and again and again and again and again and again. The New Testament scholar Alan Culpaper explains it quite pointedly. He says, The responsibility is thereby placed not on the penitent person to demonstrate that his or her repentance is genuine, but on the disciple to demonstrate that he or she is capable of following Jesus' command to forgive one who repents. Jesus' admonition is emphatic. You will forgive him. Why? Why? Because that's how Jesus has treated you. Really now, how many times have you had to go back and ask for forgiveness for the same thing again? I bet it's more than seven for lots of us. This is simply what the life of discipleship looks like. Showing grace upon grace upon grace to the weaker brother to keep him from stumbling to forgive him when he does well the disciples response is probably a lot like our response would be whoa that sounds impossible Uh, that's more than I can do so they cried out to the Lord increase our faith (laughs) increase our faith But Jesus then gave them a surprising answer to that request, which brings us to our second point here. Faith simply obeys the master. Faith simply obeys the master. Jesus answers his disciples' request for more faith by telling them a story. He says, suppose that you have just one servant. You're not a rich man with lots of servants, with field hands and household servants. No, you have one servant. He works the fields and he tends your flock and he takes care of the house. Now when that servant comes in from the field or from the barn, uh, what do you say? What do you expect of him? Do you say, boy, you look tired. Just sit here in my lazy boy and I'll go in and and, and, and fix some dinner for you. No, you don't say that. You say to him, what are you fixing for dinner? For you're the master and he's the servant. No matter how faithfully that servant serves, the master is never in his debt. He's his servant. That's what he does. He serves. And when he has done everything he was told, he's only done what he was told. The master doesn't owe him. He's done what he was told. Now, what does that have to do with this passage? Well, first, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you don't need more faith. You don't need more faith. If we conceive of faith as some kind of spiritual power, as we mentioned at the start, then we could think, boy, we need more and more of the power. But that view of faith exalts man, not God. 
I like the way Stephen Cole explains it. He said, stop and think about it. Have you ever had someone say to you, I wish I could believe in Christ as you do. I just don't have as much faith as you have. And you clear your throat and modestly say, oh, shucks, it's really nothing. And who gets the glory there? You do. You're the one with such great faith. The focus is on you. Or have you heard of a great Christian leader referred to as a man of great faith? Who gets the glory? The man of great faith gets the glory. All the rest of us sigh and think, oh man, I wish I had that kind of faith. But that's the wrong emphasis. The issue is not how much faith you have, but only if you believe or not. And in whom is your faith placed? Let me give you an example. Let's say you buy a brand new car. Man, it's got all the bells and whistles and plays music and has a phone that talks and has all kinds of things. And you're so impressed with this. You say, I believe that this car can take wings. It can sprout wings and take flight. I'm taking it out of the freeway and we're going to get it off the ground. And so you believe that. And you believe it with all your heart. And you crank that thing up as fast as it'll go. You believe it's going to fly. But it's not going to fly. Now, I don't care how much faith you have. It's not going to fly. On the other hand, you could have only faltering, white knuckle, trembling, cold sweat faith. That that 747 you just boarded is really going to get off the ground because it's huge. And it must weigh a bazillion tons. But it is going to effortlessly take off and fly to your destination. You see, you don't need strong enough faith to be able to make a pile of sheet metal fly. You only need your pitiful, faltering faith to be placed in the right pile of sheet metal. You only need enough faith to walk on board and sit down and buckle up. That's all. You don't have to make it fly. Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a little mustard seed, you can uproot a moldy plant and plant it out in the sea. Again, Stephen Cole writes, Suppose someone has wronged you and has asked for your forgiveness, but you're deeply hurt and you're struggling with obeying God about granting forgiveness. Maybe the root of bitterness is as entrenched as the roots of the mulberry tree. How much faith does it take then to forgive that other person? Isn't the answer just as much faith as it takes to believe that God has forgiven me. That's all. You see, faith is not dependent upon the quality of the faith, but on the worthiness of the one in whom you trust. Which brings us back to the story of the master and the servant. Jesus is saying here, do you believe in me or not? We need more faith. He said, no, you don't. Do you believe in me or not? Or as he said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I said? 
with great insight. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, It is hard to believe, not because it is hard to understand, but because it is hard to obey. The issue is whether or not we understand that Jesus is the Lord, the Master, and that we are the servant who serves him. If we don't understand that, we're always going to be looking for excuses of why we cannot do what he tells us to do. I just don't have enough faith to do that. Or it just doesn't seem possible. Or I'm tired, I've been working all day, I, I can't do that now. Or I need a break, I, it's, it's my turn to have off now. Oh, but if we understand and believe that Jesus is truly Lord, he's the master, when he goes, says, you go to your brother and talk to him about his sin, we go. And when he says, when your brother has repented, you forgive him, we forgive. And when he says, that brother or sister has, sister has repented again, forgive him again, we forgive again. And restore the erring brother to our fellowship. Dear people, it's not how much faith we have. The question is whether or not we believe in Jesus enough to do what he says. Anthony Faraday, a famous English preacher in the early 1600s, put it this way. Talk what we will about faith. If we do not trust and rely upon him, we don't believe in him. It's so hard not to fall into this pattern of thinking that because we believed or served the Lord yesterday, now we've earned some merit points which obligates him to serve us today. That's how the world works, isn't it? I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. But no, long, no matter how long or how faithfully or how painfully we have served Christ, we only did it out of gratitude for what he has done for us. He does not owe us anything. We owe him everything. Everything. As I was preparing this and look back on my life, I, I realized I've spent almost my whole life trying to learn this. I still don't know if I know this. I've always liked music. I've never been much of a solo singer, but there was song, one song I sang a number of times. I like this song because I always needed to hear it myself. It's the same truth we have here. Let me read you the words. I traveled down a lonely road. No one seemed to care. The burden on my weary back had bowed me to despair. I often complained to Jesus how folks were meeting, treating me. And then I heard him say so tenderly, My feet were also weary upon the Calvary road. The cross became so heavy I fell beneath the load. Be faithful, weary pilgrim. The morning I can see, just lift your cross and follow close to me. I worked so hard for Jesus, I'd often boast and say, I've sacrificed a lot of things to walk this narrow way. I gave up fame and fortune. I'm worth a lot to thee. And then I hear him gently say to me, I left the throne of glory and counted it but loss. My hands were nailed in anger upon a cruel cross. Now we'll make this journey with your, your hand safe in mine. Lift your cross and follow close to me. Faith simply 
obeys the master. There's a danger when we look at a text like this that it gets reduced down to some kind of moralisms. <laughs> you ought to do this. You ought to do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. So it becomes all about the law, nothing about grace. What keeps it from becoming such is the underlying reality of the gospel. The grace shown to us by Jesus who spoke these words to us. All we have been calling for in this text is but a faithful response to what God's grace has given to us. How God has extended grace to us. We respond. I love the way this is set before us in the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you are very familiar with that. Some of you are not familiar. The Heidelberg Catechism is divided into three parts. The greatness of our sin and mercy. Uh, how, how we're set free from sin and mercy by Christ. And the gratitude which we owe him for such deliverance. Now, we might expect that when the Catechism teaches us about the Ten Commandments, the law of God, it would be in that first section to show us God's standard and how far short of it we fall and how miserably lost in sin we are. Did you know that's not where the Ten Commandments show up in that catechism? You know where they show up? In the third section, the gratitude we owe God for his grace to us. Then we obey him because he saved us by his his grace when we were hopeless. So now we obey him. We serve him. Isaac Watts captured this concept in his famous hymn. It's when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died that I pour contempt on all my pride. It's when I consider his love so amazing, so divine, that I realize it demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what faith looks like in the life of the disciple of Jesus. It shows grace to the weaker brother, as God has shown grace to us. And it simply serves Christ. For he is the master. We're his servants. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, so much to learn. We always want to set your love against the call to obedience. We always want, Lord, to live in the individualism of our culture and feel no obligation to one another, though you've obligated yourself to us at great cost. Help us, Lord, as we think about these things to grow in our understanding of your grace and in our understanding of what it demands of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.